everybody, Dan Urban here along with Scott Fontana for another post-pay-per-view edition of the Couchside Judges. We're now two for two when it comes to strong judging at UFC Apex, as Scott and I didn't have any major gripes with the scores from UFC 250. Not that we completely agree with them, and of course a ton of fantastic finishes made the judges' lives a little bit easier in Nevada on Saturday. True, Dan. We'll also highlight the dominant decision victory by two-division champion Amanda Nunes, who cruised past Felicia Spencer with ease in the headliner open weekend, as well as what could be next for the women's featherweight and bantamweight queen. We'll have a little past judgment for you from a brutal 2011 welterweight brawl, as well as touch upon some more judging-related revelations from the Athletics Fighter Survey Series. So let's just jump into it. Let's talk about Amanda's big dominant victory on Saturday. Yeah, I don't know if you can describe it any other way than dominant. I mean, bell to bell, she just just beat Felicia Spencer, did anything she wanted, was never in any danger whatsoever. It was total, total domination. No disrespect to Spencer, who was game throughout, as we heard and as we saw. But she just looked like a training dummy out there. You know, she never backed down. But what's that worth? She really was no match at all. Yeah, super tough. Just didn't have the skills uh, to hang with Amanda. It's And that, I think, is a reflection upon the state of the women's featherweight division right now. It, it's still very much a shallow pool of talent. You know, we, I hope we can continue to see that one grow. And it just certainly feels like it's in a better position than it was a few years ago, but it's not there yet. No, I went on the UFC's rankings website today. They didn't even have a, a list of rankings for that division. They, yeah, they still don't. Um, there's not enough fighters on the roster to do it i think they probably have maybe six or seven offhand i can't remember but it's not nearly enough there just aren't that many who are fighting above 135 pounds in the sport and you know there's not a whole lot of money to be made out there for people fighting above 135 pounds yes the ufc has that division but it's not something they're fully supporting just yet but nonetheless you know nunez probably could have finished this fight if she chose to but she kind of had that you know playing with her food kind of feel right yeah, she did, and then I kind of felt later in the fight she kind of felt bad, was showing a little bit of mercy. I think round three she really would have gotten the finish if uh, during that mouthpiece exchange. Uh looked like she was ready to, you know, let it all go there. Right, when the mouthpiece fell out. That was a weird kind of stoppage in, in action to allow that to happen. I, I thought that was a weird thing. You don't usually see that. Yeah, I, I thought that's where she was going to swarm and, you know, end the night. But... And then there was, of course, the rear naked choke in round at the end of round four. Uh, that right, yeah. that would have certainly been a mercy too. But yeah, saved by the bell. Yeah, saved by the bell, exactly. But, you know, as far as what's actually left for Amanda, let's talk about that too. I, I don't, I mean, I've given it thought and I have some ideas, but there really just isn't much left for her to do. I have one thought and that's Aspen Ladd if she beats Sarah McMahon at the end of this month. Yeah, yeah, Aspen Ladd was on my short list too at 135. From what Amanda was saying at the post-fight stuff after the victory, it doesn't sound like she's interested in fighting again this year, and I don't blame her, so it could be a little bit. Even if Ladd wins, she might have to take one more fight in between that. The other person who I noted at 135 pounds was Irene Aldana, who's been on kind of a little mini streak here going on. She's she's looking fine. To be clear, I don't think either of them are actually bringing much of a challenge. No, Amanda might just be collecting paychecks for a while. <laughs> Good for her. Dominant performances. We also saw another 135-pound division guy show himself in Aljamain Sterling. So why not take Aldo out, put him against Amanda, and then put Aljo against Peter Yan? They both get their title <laughs> shot. 
And that's what happens. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I, I like that idea better for the men's side, but but uh, yeah, we don't we don't want to we don't want to start mixing genders for sure. But <laughs> that is funny. That's creative. But as far as 145 pounds, I think probably the only fight for Nunes to fight at all is against Megan Anderson. Yeah, and that doesn't seem too challenging either. Maybe the length may give her a little something extra. I was going to say that, yeah. I think that's the only wrinkle that you can add to this is that she's at least a much larger opponent, which is something you just haven't seen for Amanda Nunes to have to deal with. But there's too many holes in Anderson's game that we've seen so far that unless she closes them up in the next year, I don't think it's going to be much more than a squash either. Yeah, and then they're they're talking about Wiley Zhang, possibly. (laughs) Please, let's not. That sounds horrible. I'm shutting that down. Any any time they're talking about, oh, let's bring a 115-pound champion all the way up to 135, 45 pounds. That's, you're just desperate. And that shows <laughs> – come on. We, we Let's be real. Yeah. The only other fight that actually would be interesting from a fan perspective, I think, is Valentina Shevchenko, who has been just so dominant at 125 pounds. And as we talked about in our previous episode, arguably beat Nunes three years ago. Twice she's lost to Nunez. I had her winning the second fight. So maybe a third fight would be interesting. It, I mean, for us, but if I'm Amanda, i never take that fight unless you're giving me a million dollars. And Dana White's not going to do that. Because what, what does she gain from that? Beat her three times instead of two? It's There's no need. I mean, Frankie beat BJ three times. Yeah, but <laughs> he didn't need to do that either. But, I mean, I think I think that one was kind of in the bag. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Frankie's going to look at this and be like, well, I just beat the pants off him in two fights. Now let's make him a lot older and less focused and bring him down to my weight class. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it doesn't make any sense. That's about all I got. That's the only thing that makes sense for Amanda. And, and none of these are good options uh, from our perspective. But again, if Amanda wants to keep collecting paychecks, I don't see much risk for her. <laughs> yeah, so why don't why don't we jump into contested rounds and start with the main event? Where we had a couple of gripes. Yeah, I would say this is gripes is probably even a little strong. We really only disagreed with the degree at which Amanda Nunez rounds were uh, awarded to her because yes, she won every single round, but yeah. only ten nine in round one from all three judges. This was the first round where I was watching this and I said, "This is a ten eight. Yeah, I thought she definitely was ten eight level there. I mean, she was landing some big shots, and Spencer really wasn't answering with anything. She had almost no offense um, as far as successful offense. Yeah, I mean, she was able to successfully get back into guard when Nunes had taken her down just so easily to get, you know, with that side control, and she was doing some work. And yes, she did, like I said, recovered guard, and she was starting to kind of inch up with her legs, but it didn't go anywhere. That was, it's not That's not yeah, offense. Maybe... Maybe it was that her lack of offense made it seem like she was giving us a 10-8 score there. Maybe that's where we're seeing it wrong, perhaps. I, I don't know. This is this is a round where I can understand why it's not a 10-8. Like, I do see the argument against the 10-8 here. And maybe just because there's an argument that negates the ability to give a 10-8. I don't, I don't want to presume that, but, you know, I could see the logic behind that. But I don't know. I, I looked at this as Nunes doing damage throughout the whole round. Largely unimpeded, you know, there wasn't much offense from Spencer at all. I, this seems like a 10-8 to me, or, or at least something that should be a 10-8. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's how I went. But what about round four? That was another round. So round four, this was a round that at least two out of three judges, Derek Cleary, not clearly Bruce Buffer, and (laughs) Chris Lee went 10-8. This was a much easier call than round one. Well, for sure. Only Saudi Amato went 10-9 here because his scorecard was 50-45, to which uh, you look at it on the surface and it just feels off for this fight. It was the most lopsided 50-45 I've seen. Uh, that's probably I've heard. I'm sure we could find some worse ones out there, but as far as in recent years, yeah, maybe that might be true. But round four, I mean, she finished in a fully locked in rear naked choke. I mean, she's pretty much saved by the bell. Yeah, she definitely was saved by the bell as far as I'm concerned. Maybe she gets out of it. You know, we, we've seen situations where people look like they're going to have to tap and, and they don't. So, you know, I don't want to project that for sure. But, you know, she was getting beat on for this round, too. This is a very dominant round. Yeah, I definitely thought this was a 10-8. And, and obviously we're supported by two of the three accredited judges, two of the three probably best judges in the whole world that we have. So I, I look at this as a situation where D'Amato, who really cares about his craft, I think he's going to already have looked back at this and say, yeah, I probably could have gone 10-8 here. Yeah, he probably will. I don't I don't want to assume it, but it, it makes sense. I think I think he cares. And the judges, after fights, you know, they get assessed for, for their performance, too. So if there's something that they disagree with, they're going to hear about it. So I, I think he's probably already come around on this. I, you know, he'd have to say for sure, but I would think so. All right, but that's all we really have for the main event. How about we move on to another fight that we saw some scores we didn't totally agree with. Neil Magny over Anthony Rocco Martin by unanimous decision. Well, actually, this is funny because I agreed wholeheartedly with the 29-28 score assessed by Eric Cologne, Jersey. But I disagreed with Dave Hagen and Rick Winter, who went 30-27. However, a bunch of people on social media, including many people who submit their scores to MMA decisions, they saw this as 29-28 for Martin. I think they're seeing it wrong. I think they're seeing it wrong, too. I mean, round one, Martin didn't do anything but push him against the cage, and any of the offense came pretty much from Magny. Yeah, this was a lot of Martin working for a takedown that never really came, and he never mixed in any, you know, much strikes at all. There was maybe a couple knees in there, but nothing very hard, and, and I think he made a tactical error by not trying to at least include some offense while he was trying to work for this takedown, soften up Magny in some way or another. Magny was the one who was landing the impactful strikes, you know, especially those low kicks. Yeah, Magny, I mean, Magny's great. He's got a, a crazy gas tank. He was basically outstriking him more than two to one. I mean, I know the numbers don't matter, but in a round where you're not doing any striking at all, really, how do you how do you win a round that way? Yeah, I don't see much argument from Martin here either. I'm, I'm with you. And this is the only round that anyone could be up in arms about as far as where it goes either way, because we do agree that in round two, this was a, a round for Martin, but round three was obvious and everybody seems to agree that that was a Magni round because Martin was kind of gassed out. But let's talk about round two, because this was the round that Cologne was the minority score against Dave Hagen and Rick Winter. And you and I both saw this for Martin, correct? He was the better fighter in round two. He was the one landing the impactful strikes. Yeah, he had that stiff right hand that he landed early. He had the takedown with some amplitude on it, right? He had that choke attack, and that was right in front of Cologne, we should point out. So he had the best angle here. So he definitely had the best view. Yeah. I I just still find it very tough to give this round to Magny. I do too. 
you know, and, and there was even that Kimura that, that Martin kind of went for when they were clinched up against the cage. It, it wasn't necessarily close on being some sort of offensive attack, but it really got him out of that situation. And it, I mean, that counts as effective offense as far as I'm concerned. Oh, definitely. So I just, I don't see, you know, Magny had some success. I don't see how you can give it to him here. I, I strongly disagree with Hagen and Winter on this one. So, you know, kudos to, like I said, uh, the Jersey guy like us, Eric Cologne. I think he got the perfect score here. And honestly, anybody out there on social media who thinks that Martin won this fight, even if you really thought he won this, was round one that clear for Anthony Rocco Martin that you're going to get that mad about it? I mean, that's it's silly. I just want to be clear that none of the we didn't disagree with any of the judges on round one. They all had it for Magny. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, we're, I, we're I want right to make there. that clear. I wasn't arguing with them. I was arguing with the social media crowd. Yeah. So uh, sorry to any of our listeners who, who might go that way. I, I, I think you're wrong. Real quick, let's talk about Devin Clark against Alonzo Menafield because there was a little bit of disagreement that Dave Hagen gave the first round to Devin Clark, thus giving him all three rounds, whereas Michael Bell and Junichiro Camillo went 10-9 for Menafield in round one. Yeah, I really think that's the wrong score to give it to Clark for round one. I remember, I believe it was Dave Hagen because they're pressed against the panel where he's sitting right there. I believe it was him. So what I'm going to say is possibly he didn't see the uppercut that closed Clark's eye pretty much and wasn't able to actually see the damage from it. That's certainly possible. So I'm thinking perhaps that and when Clark had a a pretty decent end of the round, I'm thinking that's what may have swayed him because I think it was right in front of him, that uppercut, which he could have missed because the guy's back is to him and he never gets to see the damage. Yeah, this is this is something that a lot of people don't think about when they're watching. It's it's something most people wouldn't think about at all. But yeah, I mean, it really comes down to your view sometimes. I don't know if that's exactly what it was for Hagen in this case. For whatever reason, he disagreed with Bell and Camillo. I thought it was a close round. I really did. Uh, but I did go Menafield as well. So I, I, I feel like Clark getting the round was, was not correct. But I didn't think it was as egregious as some people did. I also didn't think those clinch inside leg kicks were all that strong but again Hagen's right there so he can he, he's seeing it maybe he's assessing those as pretty strong that could be that could be and what about the uh the 10-8 situation we already talked a little bit about Amanda Nunez fight but there was one other fight where you and I both thought that there could be arguments for 10-8s right I did I thought perhaps Caceres over Chase Hooper round one was the possible 10-8 I scored it as a 10-8. I tweeted it out when it came back as a 30-27 that I'm not even mad about it because, I mean, I don't know if the duration was there. I don't know if if even the dominance was totally there because even though Chase Hooper was taking a beating, he was still firing back. I don't, so I don't really know. I, I actually really thought that was a perfectly fine 10-9, no problems there. Round three, though, is this was the round that I thought should have been a 10-8. Uh, it was it was just such a lopsided beating from Bruce Leroy uh, on Ben uh, Ben Askren's kid there, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that kid's funny. Um, I'm not really up in arms about no ten eights in this round or in this fight at all, but it really did seem to me that it met the standard. I think if it was our CSJ system, all three rounds of this fight are a ten eight and not quite ten seven level. Perhaps I wasn't looking at it in that. that I'm not, I wasn't necessarily either, but I think you could you could probably project the way we do our scores there. I, I'd have to watch it again to be know for sure, but 
this is why I think it would be nice if there was a little bit more of a middle ground between what we consider a 10-9 and a 10-8. There's, you know, there's 10-9s and then there's 10-9s, you know, and, and I think that should yeah. be its own thing. But, you know, that's that's neither here nor there. All right. Well, what did they get right? What did judges get right? Oh, you know, they got quite a bit right, actually. They did a good job. Cody Stamen over Brian Kelleher. Every judge gave that 30-27. Right call. Round one, all three judges gave to Charles Bird in his fight against Maki Pitolo, except Pitolo just kind of turned the tables in round two and got the TKO, so it didn't really matter. And then Bird retired, like, within an hour after the fight. <laughs> he retired? He did. Oh, I missed right that. After the fight. Oh, oh yeah, that. yeah. It was, it was kind of strange. It was, he put out a tweet, and he's like, oh, I'm done with fighting. Oh, okay. Um, hey, fine for him if he, if he doesn't want to fight anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I don't blame the guy. Um, and then the other one was uh, round one, 10-9 for Cody Garbrandt against Rafael Sunsau, you know, didn't matter either because within the next five minutes or so, uh, we saw one of the most spectacular knockouts in UFC history. That was crazy. But speaking of finishes, we had seven of them, five in the first round. You got to have a favorite. <laughs> Garbrandt, obviously, dude. <laughs> I mean, when you get a knockout like that at the buzzer, literally at the buzzer and not after the horn, but at the horn, it was perfect. He wound up all the way from I think I think there's that on the broadcast behind his knee and and that's that's what it looked like. Yeah. He wound up from Jersey where he was training with Mark Henry. That and, was a, yeah. a legit haymaker from hell. Oh my yeah, that's a perfect name for it. Wow. But I, honorable mention for me, I you know, just cuz we we don't want to talk too much about the finishes, or, you know, we're all about the judging here, but honorable mention for me, Alex Perez, leg kick TKO of Juicy A Formiga. Formiga is a real solid flyweight fighter who unfortunately will go down as someone who never got to fight for the flyweight title in the UFC, but was really one of the best 125-pounders of the last 10 years. Yeah, really impressive performance. Second leg kick TKO in a row. <laughs> yeah. There's something in the magic in the air in the uh, UFC Apex with leg kick KOs. Yeah, the one thing I am worried about with all these low kicks, though, I am scared of seeing one another Anderson Silva situation, as they did mention on the broadcast. Oh, it's gonna it's gonna happen. Yeah, I, mean, scary. I don't know when, but it's it's yeah. inevitable. This that's just gonna happen in this sport once in a while. What about you though? I, I I said a few that I liked, and there were many more. But what about you? I mean, no shock here. Sterling's rear naked choke of Corey Sandhagen, mainly oh, because yeah. it was such a high profile fight with so much on the line, and Aljamain Sterling came out and looked incredible. He was a house of fire. Came out so fast, took the back. Dragged him to the ground. Well, Sanhagen actually kind of sat to the ground, which was I, I found that kind of weird. And then had to fight a, a body triangle and a choke for the next minute. And it just wasn't he, happening. He, was fight, he fought off that choke for a little bit, too. And then, obviously, he, he couldn't get out the second time. Honorable mentions for me. Herbert Burns, rear naked choke. These Burns boys are on fire. And Sean O'Malley, one hitter, quitter. Walk off, knockout. Awesome. It's, it's crazy that we've got to call that like, oh, yeah, that's just another afterthought honorable mention because that was an amazing KO, too. I mean, great, great two weeks from the Apex so far. It's it's looking good. It's been fun. So let's move on, though, to uh, lest ye be judged. This is the segment where we grade the judges of the night. Scott, do you have a judge you agreed most with? Oh, my top two judges of the night are Eric Alone, no surprise, and Junichiro Camillo. You know, I should say that. Just about every single judge was awesome 
and not just good, but awesome. I thought the judging for the second week in a row was just amazing. Um, but Cologne really stood out, not just because he's from Jersey, but I agreed with all seven of his scores. He he got the right score in Magni and Martin. You know, he was he was the only one to get 29-28. As far as I'm concerned, that's the right score. And Camillo, he went 29-28 for Clark, which was perfect as well. So I'm very impressed. But on the whole, honestly, kind of an easier night for the judges, you know? There were, there were so many early finishes. They didn't have many rounds to turn in. Yeah, those finishes really helped them out. I think they're hoping for a 25-foot cage forever. <laughs> Maybe. What do, you, what do you think? Who who was your standout of the night? Eric Cologne gave him an A+. Plus. Seven for seven. I didn't have any gripes at all, major, minor, nothing. I thought it was a perfect scorecard that he turned in for the night. There you go. Now, I, I mean, it feels weird to say, you know, who was your worst judge because – there was no worse judge, but who who was the judge maybe you disagreed with the most? Yeah, I, I disagreed with Dave Hagen most. He was the only judge I disagreed with as far as who won rounds. And while my other gripes were basically just 10-9 versus 10-8. Yeah, I think for me, the, it was really just the 10-9 versus 10-8 arguments that I was a little more... Had smaller beef, but beef nonetheless. So Sal Diamato and Derek Cleary particularly stood out. Uh, at least Cleary went 10-8 round four for Nunez. But he was also on the Alex Caceres fight, so for him not to give any 10-8s here, maybe I'm out of line here, but I did disagree. I thought it should have been a, a 10-8 round in there for Caceres in round three. Yeah, the th- I just I, I weighed those, uh, the 10-9 versus 10-8, lower than I weighed if I actually disagreed with the actual fighter. Sure, that makes sense. So, That's fair. Yeah, so the Clark round one and Magny round two, I, uh, I disagreed with Hagen. So yeah, with judging largely on point, We've got a little uh, time to get to a past judgment, right? We're going back nine years to break down a controversial victory for Diego Sanchez over Martin Kampman. <laughs> if anybody's newer fans in the, the Conor McGregor mold, maybe you don't remember Kampman, but he was an awesome fighter. Uh, before we get into it, though, Dan's going to remind you how our scoring system works for this segment. Yep. We just use a modified version of the ABC criteria, which is used by most commissions. You know, we just have a few key differences. Like certified judges, we evaluate rounds using the three Ds, damage, dominance, and duration, in that order. We've made it so a strong 10-9 round would be scored as a 10-8, while a traditional 10-8 round becomes a 10-7. Closer rounds would still just be 10-9s, even if only by a small margin. This allows for more diverse scores in the hope of more accurately reflecting what happened in a fight. We also dropped aggressiveness and area control as tiebreakers, but these aren't intended to be used very often anyway, uh, as we can only use a 10-10 in largely uneventful rounds. Scott, tell us a bit about Sanchez and Campman coming into this one. So this one was the headliner of UFC on Versus 3. Remember when Versus was both a network and a place that UFC had events on? Yep, this was the third event for that one. <laughs> it took place at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky, which is by far the greatest slash worst name for an arena in the world. Yum. Back on March 3rd, 2011. So this was actually a three-round non-title main event. They were still doing those at this point. Wouldn't go to the five-rounders until November that year. Sanchez, he had come in with a respectable 22-4 and record, much better looking than his record now, which looks a lot more journeyman. But don't forget, there was a time where Sanchez was a really, really good fighter. Uh, this was his third welterweight fight after losing to lightweight champion BJ Penn in late 09. He had just beat Paulo Tiago in a fight of the night in October. So still appointment viewing Diego Sanchez. Campman was also an established upper-level welterweight 
with a 17-4 and record, coming off a split decision loss to Jake Shields. I remember thinking Cameron deserved to win that one, but I'd have to watch that one again. Judges for this fight, Sal Diamato, Chris Lee, and William Mattingly. No relation to Don, as far as I could tell. Referee, Herb Dean. And I should also note that the individual round scores for this fight are unknown, so we only have the final tallies. All right, Dan, come on, let's get into it. Give me round one. What would you see? Round one, strong round for Campman. Diego's face is busted up. Uh, at one point, Campman was landing some good knees against the cage, forcing Diego to put his hand onto the mat to prevent him from doing that legally. He was landing great clinch knees, too, he, Like even when they were kind of standing up in the tie clinch. Yeah, that's true, too. That's that's what brought him down to that that bent over position. Starting to play the game a little bit, yeah, which we're still playing. Definitely a clear edge for Campman in the striking department in this round. Absolutely. I, I just didn't think the dominant or duration boxes were checked. I definitely thought the damage was there. I mean, no arguing that. So I only went 10-9, but I definitely see a strong case for a 10-8. I see this as definitely a 10-8. I, I think that Campman's offense was consistent throughout the round. He was definitely the one getting the much better of the exchanges throughout. It's not to the point where I would give a 10-7 in our scores or probably even go uh, 10-8 in the ABC scoring, so I wouldn't expect a judge at the time or even now to give out a 10-8. But this, to me, in our system, this is a 10-8. I, I went a little further than you. It's, it's so decidedly Campman, you know? It was right there for me. I just okay. felt, de- you know... He just didn't have enough dominance. All right. Yeah, I, I thought the duration was really more of this. So we're talking about two out of three Bs. So, yeah, I, I have 10-8 here. You have 10-9. You have to assume, even though we don't have the individual round scores, that all three judges gave Campman this round 10-9. We just don't know. But I, as we'll see later, I think this is the only thing that makes sense. So let's go round two, Dan. There was a, a little bit of a change here, though. It was a little closer, right? Yeah, this was a fun round. It was. It really was. <laughs> Diego was really active. As yeah. <laughs> I didn't think he landed that much. I mean, he did cut yeah. Campman, so you know he landed because I mean the guy's bleeding. Yeah, that bl- that cut right underneath his right eye. Yeah, so something hit him, and it was punches. It was punches. It was a wild round, but I just felt Campman won the majority of the exchanges. I thought so too, and and to your point about not landing as many in, in these slurries. I, I felt like it was like a 35% success rate in those slurries. So like when you see him going crazy there, it's like, I don't know, three or four out of 10 are actually landing, but yeah. he's not throwing 10 strikes. He's landing, he's throwing about four or five. So he's landing one to two of them. And, and it, just, it looks busy, but it's not really landing, you know, judges should. And I assume guys like Lee and D'Amato, especially, they know what's landing and what's not when they can see it, but uh, I just it just didn't look like there was as much landing flush for Sanchez that you yeah. would give him this round. He did land a few decent ones. Uh, you gotta yeah, give him yeah. that. But I thought, especially towards the end of the round, Campman took over a bit. He landed that you know big like one two, which Diego seemed a bit rocked from towards the end of the round. And you know what it is too, Campman was landing a lot of these like short hooks and counters that they were like so technically sound these strikes, but they, they weren't as kind of boisterous as the strikes that you were seeing being thrown by Diego. And, and I almost wonder, again, you know, these guys are pros. They're not amateurs here, but it's does, does it look more impactful like that way? I don't know. I, I don't know, but I scored a 10-9 for Campman. 
Same here, same here. You you wouldn't go any any other way. It was a much more back and forth round, so I didn't even get any you know duration and certainly not dominance coming into play. So yeah, we're talking about a textbook ten nine round here. Very fun round. I might yeah, it was a super fun round. That's true. This is a fun fight overall. It really just was. I mean, Diego comes to bang every time. You don't have to like the way maybe the, the scorecards end up going his way or not. But he always is fun, and that's really what it counts as far as an entertainment product. Yep. <laughs> and we all love fights, right? But for me, Campman's at twenty to seventeen on the cumulative scorecard. You would have Campman up twenty to eighteen. Yep. And the judges, we don't know what they did, but you can presume that all three went Sanchez here because we'll get to in a minute what the final score was. Gotta imagine. Yeah. So yeah, we'll we'll move on to round three. Yeah, so round three. What you got? Round three, extremely close. This was really close. And there's a case for both men. Sanchez was landing well for about half the round. The latter half of the round, especially the final minute, Campman's doing more damage. But I ended up leaning Sanchez here. And I, but I'm fine with Campman too, I should say this, but I did lean Sanchez. I definitely gave this 10-9 Sanchez. He had that big takedown right into side control. It was a pretty good slam. Uh, they didn't stay there very that long. That was the thing that stood out for me. Dan was the fact that that takedown yielded nothing. Yeah, it was straight. You know what? It was straight to side control. It was a, a decent slam. I, you know, I gave it some weight. All right. But Diego's face was an absolute mess. Oh my god, it was. <laughs> it was so bad. If you just looked at the two fighters at the end of the fight, you'd say no way Diego won this fight based strictly on that. Yeah, he failed the eye test for sure. Uh, that's not how a fight would be judged necessarily, but uh, I mean. Sometimes you you kind of wonder about the scoring systems that we have in place, even the one we use, and it's just like, well, how how can we allow for a fight to go one person's way when they look like they've been through a meat grinder? I always had a saying: he won the game, lost the fight. And I mean, I don't know how true it rang, how true it rings. I kind of feel that way for GSP and Hendricks. You know, I felt GSP lost the fight, but he won the game. Uh, yeah, that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> right, but all in all. 10-9 Sanchez for round three. Yeah, same here. So, you know, on my card, I got 29-27 for Campman. You have 29-28 for Campman. But the judges, we know that they all went 29-28 for Sanchez, which is why we can assume round one probably went the way of Campman because there just didn't seem to be much of an argument for Sanchez there. So the, obviously the other two rounds would have to be for Sanchez, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the only way you can go. Uh, I, I, we, we will never know the answer, but... You got to assume it. I don't hate Diego winning either round there. They were both close rounds. <sighs> round two, yes, it's a closer round for sure. And that's why I think in particular the fact that I went 10-8 in round one, this is a draw, even if you give the other two rounds to Sanchez. On my card, that's a draw. And I think that's a better reflection of the fight we saw. Yeah, it was definitely back and forth. So that's why I like our system because it allows for us to be a little more flexible here. And hey, if this was a draw and it was such a fun fight, don't you think people would have been like, hey, let's do it again? <laughs> That's true. They would have. And that would have been great. Cause or they would have said, give us two more rounds. Re- rematches aren't always fun, but come on. Are Martin Campman and Diego Sanchez not going to give you another fun fight? Of course they are. Actually, to be honest, if there was two more rounds, Campman may win Dr. Stoppage. Uh, probably. Yeah, I think at some point the doctor would have stepped in. So it's it's probably to Sanchez's benefit that it didn't go that way, even if he was actually starting to gain the momentum a little bit. Yeah. Although Camden was, you know, maybe getting a little tired too. So you, you can you could see ways where it wouldn't have happened. But hey, neither here nor there. 
that wasn't going to happen. There was no title on the line, and we didn't get the five-round main events until later that year. So, you know, I just have trouble looking at this fight and saying Sanchez won the fight, objectively. Forget the scores. It just he doesn't pass the eye test. All right, so that's all we have for past judgment. But we did want to touch on the Athletics Fighter Survey. They did another portion that related to MMA judging, and, you know, we wanted to touch on that. Obviously, we talked about part of that survey as far as what fighters wanted to see from a rule change perspective and that kind of thing. But then there was part of the survey that also got the opinions of fighters, how they felt with regard to referees and the idea of how the judges were and officials with commissions and things like that. So the one question that really stood out from this one was, and here's how it's worded, for the most part, do you consider MMA judging to be competent? And about two-thirds said no, not competent, which is, (laughs) as they noted in their article, a very low bar, competency. And it couldn't be cleared in most fighters' opinions. Whereas about a quarter of them said yes, and there were the rest were undecided. Well, you know what? Those two-thirds, I believe don't understand the criteria fully. I think you're right. We hear DC on commentary every week almost, and a lot of the things he's saying is wrong. It just doesn't make sense, yeah. It doesn't align with, with the with the criteria, yeah. And, you know, DC's a great fighter. Not going to say that. I love him on commentary, but and he's commentating, so he's not scoring a fight, so it's a lot, lot more to take in for him. But a lot of things he's saying is wrong when he's talking about, you know, just getting a takedown and, and you know, oh, that's got to win him the round, stuff like that. It's just wrong. It's misaligned, and it's also spreading misconceptions about how the judging criteria is used. We don't even have a full grasp of the judging criteria. We're learning as best as we can. We haven't been trained, you and I, Dan. Right. But the fighters themselves seem like they've never even heard of how this thing works. It's almost like they watched UFC fights growing up and listened to the way Goldie and Joe Rogan were talking about fights, and they said, well, this is obviously what's valuable. Well, not exactly. It's really not how it is. (laughs) <laughs> but in particular, one fighter was against boxing judges crossing over to MMA. That was that was this fighter's gripe. One called for background on judges assigned to their fights so that they could strategize and say, okay, this, this person values takedowns, then I'll go for more takedowns. That's not really how it works. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's silly. There's a lot of misconceptions out there. What they need to um, do is either unionize for more reasons than just this and hold a fighter's summit twice a year and include a judging and rules section so they know exactly what to do or how a fight is scored. Or the UFC should be doing this. I mean, they used to do the fighter summit every year. I don't know if they included a rules and judges stuff, but this ought to be taught to these fighters. I mean, because they get so much flack for the way they score fights, yet no one understands how to score a fight. There's definitely a disconnect between what the fighters think they're supposed to be doing and what the judges are supposed to be doing actually. I don't know what the answer is to solve that. You know, we, we spoke a little bit about this with Rob Hines uh, last month and, you know, I'd be curious to see what he thinks about that as well too, because there, we do need to find a way to bridge the gap between what the fighters are trying to do to win a fight and what the judges are saying is winning a fight. And I think that's unfortunate for the fighters, but it is on them too as, as i understand it the judges have, have tried you know commission officials have tried to kind of make it easier for them to say okay you want to find out what we do and a lot of fighters just pass on it right it's on them to seek it out it's offered to them it's available go find out you have to accept it and you know 
before we wrap, because we're just about done here, I really just want to give a shout-out to Dan Stupp, Chad Dundas, Chuck Mindenhall, and Josh Gross, formerly of The Athletic, who were let go at the end of last week. You know, They were a big part of putting this fighter survey together. I'm gutted personally that The Athletic gutted its own MMA team so much because they were just a fantastic resource. I said you should go subscribe to them. I said that in our last episode, and everything changed since then. They still have great people there like Ben Folks, Fernanda Prates, and Shaheen Al-Shati, but it, it's not going to feel the same without the four that I mentioned, and it's unfortunate. Yeah, they had great content. They did, and and I hope they still well from, from those folks, and I hope they can find a way to reshape it, but uh, yeah, they lost some great voices and some great people behind the scenes. And that's a wrap on another episode of The Couchside Judges. We'll be back again at the end of the week when we expect to welcome a guest for some great back and forth on judging in the sport. You don't want to miss it. We'll have a little to say about Saturday's upcoming fights at UFC Apex as well. Make sure to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a follow on Facebook and Twitter at Couchside Judges, as well as myself at Dan Urban MMA. Follow me on Twitter also at Scott underscore Fontana. Catch you Friday, and as always, stay healthy and safe. See ya! See ya!